0: It's January 30th. I'm Brian Dean Wright, former CIA operations officer, and this is The Right Report. Hey, good day to you, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to The Right Report, your daily news podcast. I've got five briefs for you this morning that are shaping America and the world First up, Joe Biden's presidential campaign is in trouble with Arab Americans in Michigan. They are refusing to meet with him. That story shortly. Second, America continues to be hit by South American crime rings, mostly from the country of Chile. I'll share where these criminals just stole 1.7 million bucks worth of jewelry from and why this impacts you. Third, Today marks the one-year anniversary of sorts of an, an Arizona rancher who was accused of murdering an illegal migrant who was probably working for the cartels. I've got that story in a bit. Fourth, the White House has stopped a new natural gas terminal from being built in the state of Louisiana. We will talk about why that is bad for local folks there and in Europe. Finally, Ukraine's corruption problem is getting worse. Another $40 million stolen, five Ukrainians arrested. We will talk about why that matters later. A listener question today about the drone attack in Jordan. I got a series of emails, one from Derek from somewhere in America who asked what I would do if I were president to respond. So I've got an answer, but I think that there is a bigger question that we need to be asking and it involves the future of America. But before we get to that, let's get to our top stories of the morning. Joe Biden's presidential campaign is in continued trouble this morning with Arab Americans, specifically in the state of Michigan. They and other Muslim Americans in that state do not want to meet with Mr. Biden or his staff, to be more accurate. Last Friday, Mr. Biden's campaign chief was supposed to meet with the mayor of Dearborn, Michigan, a man named Abdullah Hamoud, along with other Arab community leaders and activists in that state. The mayor, though, and others canceled just before the meeting was set to start. As the mayor said, quote, it's dehumanizing to send campaign staff to ask us what it would take to earn our support next November, all the while you have an active genocide that is being funded, supported, and defended by the current administration, end quote. Well, others in the state joined in that sentiment. A leader of the Muslim campaign called Abandon Biden said that any efforts to get Arab or Muslim votes in America by the Biden folks would be, quote, futile. Finally, uh, other Arab activists in Michigan, one offered this, quote, Biden's campaign now sees us as a threat, and they know that they can't win elections without us, end quote. And as they correctly point out, Michigan is home to about 200,000 Muslim voters and another 300,000 or so of folks who claim ancestry from the Middle East and North Africa. And that spells trouble for Mr. Biden in that must-win state of Michigan. In fact, last time around in 2020, Mr. Biden claimed to have won that state by about 150,000 votes. So if he were to lose 200,000, he would certainly be in trouble. And there is polling to suggest that he is... As the Arab outlet Al Jazeera warned recently, polling of Muslim and Arab Americans shows that only 17% of those folks support Mr. Biden right now. And that is down from about 60% before the Hamas terror strikes. For what it's worth, Mr. Biden says publicly that he's not worried about these Arab or Muslim Democrat protesters. Quote, Donald Trump, Wants to put a ban on Arabs coming into the country, we will make sure that Arab and Muslims understand who is really caring about the Arab population. End quote. So those are the quick facts and data out of Michigan this morning with some pretty serious implications for the 2024 election. Let me now pivot to my analysis and opinion. And let me start with a reminder from a poll about three months ago. About 60% of Muslim Americans believe that Hamas was fully or somewhat justified in the slaughter of Jews back on October 7th. A separate 40% of them approve of Hamas's leadership. And that is who Joe Biden needs to win the White House. And that is the state of the modern Democrat Party. They need terror sympathizers to win elections. And that is why, as I shared with you yesterday, Mr. Biden wants the war in Gaza to be over as soon as possible. And that is why he's he is reluctant to hit back at Iran. And you put that together. And my goodness, that is quite a moment in U.S. history and quite horrific, really, at least if you are a voter who doesn't want someone in the White House who has to rely on terrorists as their political base. But that is this moment in U.S. history. More to come. With that, we pivot to our second piece of news of the morning. South American crime rings continue to attack and rob homes all across America It's an issue that I first raised with you back on December 14th when I shared that eight American states are being targeted by criminal gangs, mostly from the country of Chile. As listeners will recall, this started back in 2014. Under then-President Obama, he gave Chile and other South American nations some special approval to travel to this country without a visa. And that started a boom of travelers, but especially criminals. Chileans would come to this country for 90 days. They would scope out neighborhoods. Sometimes they would pretend to be yard workers or house cleaners. And then they would rob the houses of their valuables. They would then quickly fly back to Chile with their stolen goods or sell them on the U.S. black market. It's a problem that's gotten exponentially bad under Mr. Biden with stories like those that I shared with you back in December of Chilean crime tourists that were arrested in a wealthy suburb of Philadelphia as just one of the many examples. But now we've got yet another one. It involves Mr. Stefano R. Cortez Munoz. He is a Chilean national who crossed the border illegally under Mr. Biden. Well, he has been charged in Connecticut for his role in a Chilean crime ring that stole at least 1.6 to 1.7 million bucks in jewelry from a home in Greenwich. He's also believed to have run crime rings like these in the states of Florida and Oklahoma at least You may be interested to know he has been deported multiple times, but he came across the border illegally at some point over the past two years. For what it's worth, Mr. Cortez Munoz and his accomplices may also be connected to other home robberies in the cities of Avon and Simsbury, Connecticut. The style of the break-in, which uh, has involved throwing or dragging safes downstairs, well, that uh, process or modus operandi has been noticed in these other communities as well. So those are the quick facts and data about this national Chilean crime ring or rings operating all around this country this morning. Let me give you my quick analysis and opinion. As I shared with you yesterday, the U.S. Senate is working on an immigration deal related to the southern border. Well, I've got one new detail to share with you. It came out yesterday, and I think it is very much related to this Connecticut robbery. So here it is. CBS News reports that even if the southern border gets locked down under an emergency declaration by a president, well, this new Senate bill would still require Border Patrol officers to process 1,400 migrants per day who would request asylum. So let me say this again. If there is a national emergency or Mr. Biden decides to lock down the border, as he says he will, it will still mean that per law. We will have to let in 1,400 unvetted migrants per day so long as they claim asylum, which would include people like Mr. Cortez Munoz. So as I asked you yesterday, does that make sense? Does that kind of bill with those kinds of allowances make sense Well, I'll let you answer those questions this morning. I I suspect that I know what most of you probably think. But nevertheless, my counsel remains the same this morning, especially as I shared with you regarding these Chilean crime rings back in December. First, this problem about crime in general, but also these Chilean uh, criminals in particular, it's going to get worse. The border has fallen and it remains down with thousands crossing over every day. And that includes both criminals and those who are desperately poor. And we also now know that both of those groups irrespective of who they are they are treated the same in sanctuary cities and states they are largely protected from deportation so to the point you might remember the the case that i told you about the the rapist outside of boston those local officials protected him because of sanctuary policies so i think it is fair to say then that yes this problem is going to get worse and so that is why i shared with you in december and i share with you again then I would encourage you to make sure that you arm yourselves with weaponry, but only after careful training on how to use and store a gun. Also, I encourage you to arm and alarm your homes, establish a neighborhood watch group, and make sure that you understand your state or local prosecutor's beliefs on things like self-defense. Because as we have seen in some very sad cases, defending yourselves against an invader or a criminal, that is not a, a protected right. Especially if your district attorney is backed by a guy named George Soros. And speaking of cases of justice and prosecution and illegal migration, I've got our final news before our first break, and it involves a case out of Arizona involving a rancher and a dead Mexican. By way of quick background, one year ago today, a rancher named George Kelly was on his property that sits near the border with Mexico. And a group of illegals swarmed his ranch, trespassing, wearing camouflage boots, and carrying a bunch of two way radios. They also had backpacks that may or may not have contained things like drugs. One of the illegals was named Mr. Gabriel Quen Buitimia. We will simply call him Gabriel. Well, he had crossed over the border illegally with at least two other illegal migrants. According to former Border Patrol chief Rodney Scott, this scenario matches the known way that cartels operate who move drugs and illegal migrants. Typically, men like Gabriel serve as scouts as the drugs or the people are ferried in. And that background was certainly not lost on the rancher, Mr. Kelly. He claims that while he was having lunch with his wife, he heard a shot. He went outside with his rifle. He saw the group of likely cartel members in the distance and he fired off warning shots in the air and the Mexicans scattered. Border patrol agents came to the property, searched the area, but didn't find anything, at least not initially. Later in the day, however, Mr. Kelly went to water his horses when he says he came across a very dead Mr. Gabriel. The 74-year-old rancher was then charged with that illegal alien's death based in large part on the testimony of one of the other illegals that ran off. He says, this illegal says, that the group was simply passing through, albeit unlawfully, when Mr. Kelly just opened fire. And that is at the heart of the the debate this morning, one year later, with prosecutors saying that they've also got other evidence to suggest that, yes, a murder uh, it did happen. That includes text messages from Mr. Kelly, voicemails, and an old book that proved that he murdered this likely cartel member. As you would imagine, his defense attorneys disagree. Mr. Kelly is slated to go on trial in March. He recently turned down a plea deal. The trial is expected to last three weeks. So those are the quick facts and data that I wanted to put on your radars this morning on what is the one year anniversary of the showdown at Mr. Kelly's border ranch. Let me pivot now by offering one piece of analysis and opinion. When the federal government fails to defend the border or have operational control over it, You are going to have increasing numbers of people trying to defend themselves against lawlessness. And that is true whether you are in Connecticut and you're faced with these Chilean thieves or you are in Arizona on your ranch and you're facing off with Mexican drug mules or cartel scouts. And that is why this case about Mr. Kelly is so important. And it deserves to be on our radars, folks, because it is about far more than Mr. Kelly. It's about the painful fact that every one of us faces the increasing odds that a criminal will come into our homes or onto our property illegally, and we will face a choice about how to respond. And while that is not a new scenario, that is old as time, actually, what is new and shocking includes two things. First, the southern border in places like southern Arizona, it is truly lawless. Other ranchers in the area confirmed that what happened to Mr. Kelly happens to them all the time, that illegals and cartel members are armed with AK-47s and they blast their way through their properties and they kill anybody, including a rancher that gets in their way. And that has not stopped. It is only getting worse. Second, the other thing that is new or shocking is a claim that the justice system in this country is increasingly favoring the criminal over the victim. In fact, there's a concept called restorative justice where the victim is encouraged to think about the times when they caused harm to other people. And perhaps that should mean that the perp or the thug is given forgiveness, certainly by the victim, but also by the state. And that would include even in the most egregious of crimes. So we will unpack this claim about American injustice and restorative justice and whether or not it's really that bad or happening all across the country. And as we have this conversation in the coming weeks and months, we will also explore and focus on why this might be happening. In other words, why would anyone put criminal rights before victims' rights? Well, not to spoil it, but I'm going to make the case that it is just one element of a broader revolution that is happening in America right now, in our law, and our politics. It is a Marxist revolution at heart. So put this idea and this case of Mr. Kelly on your radars, folks, with More to come, certainly during the trial in March. And with that, let's take our first break of the morning. For subscribers listening at rightreport.substack.com, thank you. It is you and your financial support that are keeping this podcast alive. Meanwhile, for my other loyal listeners, I think you as well. I encourage you to do your part this morning and support the companies that support me. You will hear about them shortly. We'll be right back. Folks, for over 230 years, my family of farmers and ranchers have worked the fields and logged the mountains of America. And while doing it, we've come up with a family motto. We call it Right Country. It's about creating a family and community that take pride in things like hard work, good living, and love of the nation. And fueling that family motto each morning is our new daily tradition. It's a cup of Right Country coffee. I am so proud to introduce this to you. It's been created by my favorite company, the one and only Wacker Coffee Company. It has a, a natural taste of chocolate, almonds, brown sugar, although I should tell you, nothing has been added to this. That is just how the beans properly taste when properly roasted. And that is why it has become my family's daily workhorse, whether that be in the fields or in the mountains or at the office. So do yourself a favor. Go to WackerCoffeeCo.com. That's W-A-C-K-E-R, WackerCoffeeCo.com, and look for the right country blend. For my paid subscribers, you will get 15% off your order. Just use the promo code that you will find in my daily Substack post. But whether you are a paid subscriber or not, you gotta taste my family's personal roast. Taste Right Country from WackerCoffeeCo.com. And as you do, my friends, think of me and know that you are part of my family you are part of right country welcome back to the right report let's continue with our news this morning with a pivot towards a mix of domestic and international developments we start in the state of louisiana which was supposed to be the new home of the country's largest liquefied natural gas or lng export facility But no longer, the Biden White House announced last Friday that it was pausing all pending export permits for these LNG facilities, all until the Department of Energy can review their impact on climate change. And that will effectively cancel about 17 projects that are in the permitting process, mostly in Texas and Louisiana, including that massive new LNG facility that was supposed to be built near Cameron, Louisiana. The White House is celebrating what they did, telling Americans that it is a big win for the climate. And those activists in the climate community are certainly quite happy, including folks in the Sierra Club to also former Vice President Al Gore, all applauding Mr. Biden this morning as he takes down any future growth of this LNG industry. However, not as happy are the locals who were counting on future jobs in Louisiana. Also not happy are area governments who are looking forward to some tax revenue, Also not happy, as you would imagine, are the LNG operators. But perhaps the most angry, upset, or losing end of this short stick is Europe. As Bloomberg News reports, European countries have been counting on the Americans as their cornerstone energy provider, hoping to eventually replace the Russians. And while it is true that Europe does have access to other LNG, especially from Arab countries or places like Norway, America's LNG was and is viewed as the safest, most predictable source of energy to power European homes and businesses. Others say that Biden's decision probably won't be a killer of European prosperity. For instance, Bloomberg NEF reports that there is a global buildout underway of LNG facilities, and that will result in about 70 percent more capacity by the year 2030. But that's still driving climate change activists absolutely bonkers. They see this fuel as dirty and they want to shut it all down. And that is their goal to reduce this 70 percent more capacity all the way to zero and well beyond. So those are the quick facts and data this morning. Let me now pivot to my analysis and opinion and talk about why you should care. If you live in Texas or Louisiana, you definitely care about this news. Fewer jobs, less tax revenue, less economic development. And that is all very bad. But I think that Biden's decision is also a lost opportunity for America. Because we now provide Europe about 40% of their LNG imports. And that is far more than any other country in the world. But if we could increase that, our LNG gives us much greater leverage over European countries, just like Russia had before the run-up to the war in Ukraine. And that fight over power and energy has shaped the very destiny of the world for centuries, making largely irrelevant nations or regions like the Middle East suddenly in the driver's seat of global politics because of their dominance of an energy supplied like oil. And that is what the Biden White House just gave away he shut down our ability to shape the world as we want to with our LNG. And that's a shame. The only good news is that with a new president, this LNG decision could be reversed. We might claw back our LNG market share with some good paying jobs to boot in Louisiana. And then maybe we can gain some more leverage over those European partners when they're getting a little bit too sassy down the road. Finally, and speaking of Europe... We close out this morning's right report with this quick news from Ukraine. Five Ukrainians have been arrested for their involvement in a $40 million theft of funds that were supposed to buy ammunition for the war against Russia. However, none of the 100,000 artillery shells that they bought were ever delivered. Rather, the money went straight into their corrupt little pockets. All five men were relatively senior officials within the Ministry of Defense. Defense. When asked for comment, President Volodymyr Zelensky said that this development is actually a good thing. It's a demonstration of his commitment to root out endemic corruption in his country. And corrupt, it is arguably the most corrupt in all of Europe and one of the most corrupt on the planet, depending on the index that you look at. But in this case, the happy news is that the corruption will not go unpunished. Plus, the stolen money? will be returned to the state treasury along with about 40 million in other corruption cases. And that is why President Zelensky and his allies are quite happy this morning. And that is why they are celebrating in Kiev. But not everybody is celebrating. They're not all convinced of the happy news coming out of Kiev. A Time Magazine reporter who was embedded with President Zelensky this past fall, well, he asked a senior advisor of Zelensky's about this issue of corruption. The reporter assumed that things were getting better. The advisor hesitated to respond, asking the reporter to turn off the mic. He then said, quote, people are still stealing like there is no tomorrow, end quote. And that fact, ladies and gentlemen, is quietly being shared by the U.S. government as well. For example, we know that the State Department discreetly released a uh, report or assessment back in October that they are far more worried about Ukrainian corruption that they have publicly admitted And that would include fraud involving humanitarian aid and the supply of weaponry. Finally, there are worries in the Pentagon and the White House this morning that Zelensky will use his anti-corruption drive to push out rivals and to consolidate power. And that will encourage him to become more authoritarian over time. So those are the latest facts and data this morning out of Ukraine. No analysis or opinion to give you. Just a reminder as D.C. is debating whether or not to fund the defense of our southern border because Mr. Biden is saying no until he gets more money for Ukraine. So I will let you decide if that is a wise strategy, given what we know this morning about where, well, at least some of this money ultimately ends up. And with that, ladies and gentlemen, we conclude this morning's episode of The Right Report. But I've got one more thing before I let you go. We'll be right back. Hey everybody, Brian here. I want to tell you about a product that's important to me. But first, something that you might not know. Of the 100 prescription drugs that Americans use most, 83 are sourced from abroad. And virtually all of it comes from either China or India. And I think that that is absolutely awful. And so too, do the folks at arcseedkits.com. They provide heirloom seeds that can grow medicinal herbs year after year for a whole host of ailments from anxiety to sleeplessness to topical pain. But Beyond Medicines, their all-in-one seed kit also gets you 65 varieties of fruits and vegetables from carrots to tomatoes, onions to peppers. And that, my friends, is food security. And that's important because I believe that the likelihood of a war between China and the United States is growing. And that means that we need to be prepared to protect ourselves and our families. And that is why I believe, my friends, in arcseedkits.com. Those are heirloom seeds that can be used year after year for whatever the future might hold. So go to arcseedkits.com, enter that promo code of right, like my last name, and then you will get 10% off. So yes, go to arcseedkits.com today. You will not regret this investment. Welcome back to The Right Report with one more thing before I let you go. It's a listener question today sent to us from one of my paid subscribers at rightreport.substack.com. Derek from somewhere in America wrote in asking what I would do if I were president, if I had to respond to the Iranian attacks against our men and women in uniform in the Middle East. Derek, of course, is speaking of what I have been briefing you on for many, many weeks now. The horrific attacks uh, lately on our small base in Jordan called Tower 22. We know that uh, that has killed three service members as of this morning. We are also learning that it was likely a successful attack because the anti-drone or anti-missile systems were disabled at that base as an American drone was returning to the base after an operation. The Iranians managed to sneak in one of their weapons at the same time. More to come on that very interesting development. One other quick update for you. This morning, Mr. Biden and his national security team are debating how to respond to Iran, allegedly with a very forceful response, but not too forceful because they don't want a wider war with Iran. Maybe we can call that the Goldilocks response that is somehow just right. Well, Derek wanted to know, is that what I would do if I were president? Well, Derek, first thing, thank God I am not president. I do not want that job, nor do I want to live in D.C. But second, I answered part of this question last Friday where I laid out three paths on how a president might respond to Iran's attacks. The first was a a massive assault on Tehran, probably via covert action and with collaboration with the Israelis. The second option was, well, what Biden is doing right now. These little pinprick operations that to date really haven't done anything as Mr. Biden himself has admitted. But it does give these pinprick uh, strikes they they do give the white house a talking point in the media if nothing else that well they're doing something even if it is well ineffective. The third option that I offered you last Friday was a withdrawal from the Middle East to bring our men and women back home and probably then let China fill the void, they can deal with it given their reliance on that region and some pretty good relations with both the Saudis and the Iranians. So which of these three options would I choose? Well, if I were president, God forbid, here's how I would start the conversation as I sat down with my national security team. And I would, I would begin with this question. Why do we have troops in the Middle East? Why do we have so many folks in Iraq and Syria, Jordan, Bahrain, Kuwait, Saudi Arabia, and so on? Well, what I anticipate is that some of the folks from the Pentagon and the CIA would say that we need to degrade the threat of radical Islam, and the best place to do that is right at the root, and that requires boots on the ground in the Middle East. But I will tell you, based on my experiences, that's just not true. Boots on the ground and bases can absolutely be helpful, that is true. The drone bases or a regional presence can be helpful, but it's not critical. Right, we've got our clandestine networks. We've got our Arab partners that give us intel that we could then blow up people or their facilities. So we could and have kept the terror threat to a low boil without U.S. boots on the ground. Or ultimately, our Arab partners can do it themselves. So that means I think that there is another reason that we are in the Middle East this morning. There's another reason why we have all these boots on the ground and the bases spread all throughout the Middle East. And I think most of us know the answer. It's oil. So let's talk about some history. Back in 1908, oil was discovered in Iran. In 1927, it was discovered in Iraq. But the real gusher was in 1938. The company that would become Chevron discovered oil in the otherwise backward country of Saudi Arabia. It was a land full of radical Islamists, dueling tribes and clans, a lot of goat herders. And that was about it. It really was a, a desert dump full of Star Wars characters that you might have seen in Tatooine. So up until 1938, though, nobody really cared about the Saudis or what they were doing on their little version of Tatooine, except the British who were screwing around with their empire. But the point is, America had very little compelling interest in the region beyond stopping the occasional pirates from taking our spices or textiles. And that's important for us to remember. Without the need of oil from the Middle East, America does not need those Arab countries. But that changed in the 1920s and 30s. And in the 100 years since, we have been locked in this region, stuck dealing with a bunch of backwards tribesmen and clansmen, Islamic radicals that had no interest in modernity. And while some of those things have changed over the past 100 years, for instance, the Saudis now drive Ferraris instead of camels. Well, not much else has really changed. The Wahibi or Salafi Islamic radicals still dominate Sunni societies. The Shia radicals across the Gulf, they run the country of Iran, and they influence other nations like Qatar. In other words, the region, it really is still a violent dump. If I could borrow a line from Obi-Wan Kenobi, the Middle East is a wretched hive full of scum and villainy. But in that hive for the past 100 years, we have spent trillions of dollars, launched countless wars, and have been killed or killed lots of other people, all because of our need for oil. But that all changed with fracking or the shale revolution. By the year 2018, it made us the leading oil producer in the world. In fact, we now produce as much oil as we need, about 20 million barrels a day. Not to mention the fact that we are now the leading producer of natural gas, far outpacing Russia, Iran, and others. In short, we could be energy independent. We now have the ability to go back in time over 100 years and pull back all of our Marines, soldiers, sailors, and airmen. We don't need the Arabs or their radical Islam or the fighting Sunnis versus the Shias and the tribes. They can keep their wretched hive of scum and villainy. So why haven't we done that? Why were their troops still at Tower 22? Well, that's a choice. First, it's a political choice. Our elites have decided that we should remain in the Middle East because, as they argue, we are a global power with global responsibilities. And that means that we have to have a global military presence. And that is our destiny, certainly after World War II. But if I were president hearing that argument, I would wave it off. I just don't buy it. I hear it, but it just doesn't move me. I have no interest in what is effectively colonizing any part of the world. The other argument that you will hear a lot in Washington, D.C., or those ivory towers of Harvard, well, they will say that we are our friends in Europe. We have a lot of companies with some very big commercial interests in this region, of course, and we need to protect them. Our military then creates order. And that argument does not move me either. Here's why. Our military doesn't create anything. Our commanders-in-chief use different tools like the military to create things or execute different policies and sometimes you get a good president who creates order with the military or otherwise but sometimes you get a bad president who uses the military to create chaos and so that's why we don't need military bases all around the world if we have a good president well we can accomplish missions with planes missiles and bombs that can fly all around the world say nothing of the clandestine networks of CIA officers or our agents that give us secret boots on the ground for, say, sabotage operations or simple basic intel collection operations. Third and finally, there is this argument, and it is compelling. My oil and gas experts who are listening this morning will correctly point out that if we get out of the Middle East and we ditch their oil, we still have a pretty tricky oil problem of our own. And this starts to get a little bit complicated, involving words like heavy versus light crude and API gravity and sulfur content. But for us uh, non-oil folks, here's the upshot. If we wanted to be truly energy independent on our own oil, producing and consuming only our own oil, America would have to spend a lot of money on building new infrastructure like refineries. But again, that's a choice too. Mr. Biden and his Democrat Congress just spent upwards of $500 billion to almost $1 trillion on what they called a green energy transition, which as ever only gives us energy when the sun is out or the wind blows. So here's the point, going back to our original question that kicked this all off. Why are we still in the Middle East? Why did three people just die in Jordan? And their names, by the way, Our Sergeant William Jerome Rivers, age 46. Specialist Kennedy Laddin Sanders, age 24. Specialist Brianna Alexandria Moffat, age 23. They were all from Georgia and they are all now dead. So I ask, was it worth it? Do we really need to be the police of the Middle East? Do we need to really protect Europe's business interest and Arab lands or that Suez Canal? Do we really need Arab oil? Well, I think that reasonable people can disagree on this. And I mean that actually, but I am pretty sure that if we were to put those questions to the families of those who have just died and the thousands more dead from the wars in Iraq and beyond, well, I suspect that their families might have a different answer for us when we are asking these questions. And I would say that's important. I would say that that is something worth considering about whether or how we should respond next in places like Iran. Iran.